Next question. How would you recommend responding to friends slash family that follow gut health and hormone health and fasting according to the moon gurus? <laughs> I mean, I assume that you like these people, right? Like, if so, I probably wouldn't respond. It, 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 you know, and I, I'm not just making a joke of this. It, it's really that if you value your relationship with these people, the idea that you would challenge their belief system, it, like, it's not going to benefit them unless they ask you to engage in the conversation. And, and what they would lead with is, what do you think about this? Or is this legit? Or is this something I should be doing? In which case, they are asking for your expertise to weigh in on this. It's kind of like uh, uh, offering fitness advice in the gym to somebody who hasn't asked you, right? You see somebody lifting, and you're like, well, I know a lot about this. I'll go tell them uh, what to do if they didn't ask you. Generally, poorly received. Um, usually, they will not uh, act on your suggestions. And usually, you're invading their sort of uh, personal space by doing so. And I kind of view this the same unless somebody asks you your specific opinion. And in that particular case, I usually would start that conversation with, tell me what you know about this and sort of let them go. Because you're trying to assess what is their le level of understanding, right? What is their fund of knowledge? Are they really, really into this? Is it part of their uh, persona, so to speak? And that's going to help guide you on you know, how you'd want to interact. But in general, I mean, this happens all the time to me. I have a lot of friends um, that are in this sort of space, and we usually just don't talk about it. If they ask me about it, I'm willing to, you know, opine on that or give my give my commentary. But that's only if they ask. I don't interject with my opinion. Uh, but if they do, and we kind of go down that path, I ask them what they know about it. How do they? What do they understand about it? Why do they believe this? Uh, usually, start asking for how confident they are in this. What sort of evidence have they seen or personally reviewed? And eventually, you get to a point where, yeah, I just saw this thing on Instagram, and it seemed like it might be probable, so I started doing it, and I felt better, and so I am continuing to go on. And I, in general, have little issue with people engaging in these, I'll call them like placebo-mediated uh, sort of activities, if the stakes are low, meaning that it's unlikely to cause them or someone around them harm, right? If the stakes are rather high, and we're going to get canceled for this probably, regarding like vaccination or, you know, particularly dietary habits or avoiding medications, uh, things of that nature. I feel more strongly about being a little more stern and direct with my sort of take on things. But if it's relatively harmless, I, you know, go with God. I'm fine uh, with that in general because I don't I don't want that smoke. I don't want our relationship to be compromised by having a disagreement that ultimately I care little about doesn't affect me at all. That's just something that they're they're doing. Do you feel similarly about that? Yeah, I think I feel similarly overall. This question really just gets down to where do people's beliefs come from, right? And what is the process of belief change? And this is something that I've talked about in, in some previous Q&As and podcasts and made a very particular recommendation on this for anybody interested in where do beliefs come from and how do they change. Great book called How Minds Change. I would recommend everybody read this book, everybody. Uh, in addition to getting your blood pressure checked, you should read this book. Uh, it will make you a better human in how you interact with other people as it relates to their beliefs um, and how these things change and whether you should engage and how you should engage in belief change. And that would apply to this topic just as well. Uh, only additional comment I'll make on this is that, and this is something I'm, I struggle with and I'm working on trying to be better about, is trying to give people like the most charitable interpretation of what they're saying and where they're coming from, rather than thinking that somebody is just intentionally being, you know, obtuse or uh, you know dumb or something like that, intellectually lazy, but rather trying to put the most positive spin I can on why they're saying what they're saying, why they're doing what they're doing. And I think you know some, sometimes you're wrong, but being charitable up front tends to uh, you know uh, elicit a more positive or favorable sort of interaction than just you know 
pushing something completely away, telling people that they're not smart, or you know, ultimately just telling them what to do rather than actually engaging in a conversation. I failed a lot of times. So yeah, working on getting better. All right, is there a reason for women accumulating body fat around the midsection during the perimenopause slash menopause transition, or is this due to becoming more inactive in general? I'd also love to know more about dieting during menopause. It's always a hard conversation to have with the client when they are trying to lose or maintain body weight, but seem to trend upwards. Yeah, in general, I mean, the, the first part of the question is the uh, increase in body fat, uh, decrease in lean body mass, and uh, is that due to uh, inactivity? Uh, or is it due to some sort of underlying change that occurs through menopause? It's mostly due to declining activity rates, um, overwhelmingly due to that. Yes, things change as people get older. We've alluded to some sort of structural changes to the level of the muscle. We've alluded to um, other sort of constraints on people's ability to participate in exercise and other sort of healthy behaviors. But in general, the biggest modifiable factor here tends to be the actual activity level. And so that's kind of where you're coming from. Uh, people will say, oh, my metabolism decreased, my metabolic rate decreased. And it looks like after adolescence, met the metabolic rate in folks doesn't change until after the age of about 65 or so on average. And so it's not that your metabolism slowed down, the rest of you slowed down. And, and it's not a, you know, I'm not pointing the finger, I'm just saying that's likely what, what's happened. And we can try to do as much about that as possible. But um, I think, you know, Explaining this is one part of the solution. Uh, rather, I'd start. I'd probably switch the conversation uh, from an explanatory sort of a standpoint to more ask to asking more questions. How has your activity level changed? Why has it changed? What sort of barriers do you have to from doing what you used to do to what you're doing now? And that'll sort of give you uh, more actionable items rather than just trying to explain. Yeah, here's the underlying physiology or underlying behavior that's been taking place. That's not, yeah, terribly useful compared to uh, trying to find solutions. I think uh, and letting the person being a sort of manager in that process and, and uh, giving, giving you the information you need to, to help them out. But yeah, in general, due to decreasing uh, activity levels, there are no perimenopause or menopause specific sort of exercise or dietary guidelines. They're the same. Uh, and so that should kind of clue you in on like specific changes that happen and how um, they, they don't tend to produce these unique uh, sort of changes. Effectively, they don't. If, you, if anybody becomes inactive, you're going to see a decline in muscle function. Um, usually if individuals are younger and they become less active, they've built up or they have a higher physiological reserve. They have more muscle mass on hand. They tend to be more active in their day to day life. Uh, and so, yeah, it tends to be less noticeable. And then as people get a little bit, uh, a little bit older, it tends to be more noticeable. Um, do you have anything to add on the Mary Poppins? Yeah, there's certainly some changes in terms of, you know, the main one being loss of estrogen, and that can that's thought to maybe contribute to some redistribution of body fat or changes in body fat distribution across the body. But I think I agree that most of it is due to change in activity levels. And also by that point, people might be starting to or sometimes have already accumulated a fair amount of medical conditions that might limit them in other ways from engaging in sufficient activity and things like that. But ultimately, none of this changes the conversation from what Jordan presented during the obesity lecture, where he talked about some of these biological factors of which, yeah, maybe there's a role here. There are some psychosocial factors. There are other things. And we want to attack all the ones that we can to set up the person for success in better regulating that appetite satiety relationship so that they can spontaneously generate a calorie deficit. Whether that can be achieved exclusively through lifestyle interventions, that'd be great. But he also showed you guys the, the average success rates for intensive lifestyle intervention as it relates to weight loss, right? Not incredible. And so that means that what can we do? Do we just tell them keep lifestyling harder? Do we say, well, your postmenopausal just not going to happen for you? Yeah. No, this is something that we have the tools to deal with. 
right? We can intensify our intervention. Uh, if the, uh, as, as hard as somebody can lifestyle, if it's not getting them to where they want to be, we have the tools, we have the technology, yeah, yeah. right? Advancing to medical therapy, consideration of surgical therapy, um, if needed, very reasonable in this population. You know what's interesting is like, uh, in general, younger populations will train like high level athletes or train in similar ways or similar frequencies, similar volumes. They're like, I'm gonna lift all the weights, I'm gonna do all the conditioning, I'm gonna eat this health promoting dietary pattern, I'm gonna try my best to jack my performance up uh, to the highest level. Whereas the people who need it the most are older individuals. They should be the ones training like high level athletes. And so it's like you do it when you're younger because you can, but and really the people who need it the most are aging individuals. So yeah, if you're listening to this, you somehow ended up on our YouTube channel or a podcast and you consider yourself an aging individual as we all are, uh, would try to uh, you know train like your life depends on it because it does. Oh, that was a good one. We're gonna clip that. <laughs> okay. How, if at all, do you adjust your practice of evidence-based medicine in the face of bias in research studies, including bias that you cannot simply detect through critical appraisal, such as cherry-picking of statistical techniques to achieve favorable publication outcomes? That's a great question. Effectively, it's like, how do you deal with the uncertainty you have about research? I feel like that's what the, uh, the question boils down to, because we know that not only do the researchers have bias, the data itself, how it's presented as bias, we as individuals have bias, Everybody has bias. There's bias everywhere. I think when you go, when you talk about things that would actually change what you do, change your practice, what you're looking for is overwhelming, converging lines of multiple different data sets that show a, the same sort of thing. And effectively, you feel more comfortable changing what you're doing or continuing what you do when you see multiple different data sets from multiple different populations, angles, et cetera, all showing similar things. You feel pretty confident that like, okay, either I should do this or should continue to be doing this. One study doesn't really change uh, what I'm doing um, in general, unless it happens to be very, very well designed and there's no previous actual evidence on a particular topic, in which case that can kind of clue you in on uh, answering a clinical question that you had before. But yeah, in general, once multiple studies come out, uh, again, all showing the same thing, you feel pretty confident, pretty comfortable that, yes, while everyone has some bias uh, here, that uh, you know, it is unlikely that everyone has the same bias and would be showing the same thing. That makes me feel more comfortable about it, even though uh, if people were to drill down on like, how confident do you feel in this? I would hem and haw and talk out of both sides of my mouth for a while and ultimately say, well, we have to do something, we can't do nothing, and here's where I feel like the evidence is. Yeah, the only thing I would, add here, because I agree that having not just one study, but a large body of evidence is a way to increase our confidence the most, in particular, a large body of well-designed studies that are at the lowest risk of bias. If I could answer every question that way, that'd be great. Unrealistic, never going to happen for a lot of questions. So the other things to consider is what are the stakes at play, right? So if I have a condition that I'm looking at treating, and the treatment or not treating it or the treatment that I have is potentially very toxic, very dangerous, high risk sort of scenario, I'm going to look for a pretty large and compelling body of evidence before I change my practice to adopt this thing, before I expose a patient to this risk or expose this patient to something that is not as well understood compared to the thing that is tried and true, right? Um, the, so the higher the stakes, the more I'm looking for. If, so, if the stakes are very, very low, or if the, potential, the proposed intervention, the proposed treatment, uh, whatever the case is in the context of training, um, if the risk of trying this other thing is very, very low, then 
if I have a one study that looks decent, maybe I'll like, you know, this is pretty safe. Maybe I'll try it and start to get some of my own experience with this and see what happens, right? If it's something trivial, um, then I might try it even with a not super huge, not super compelling body of evidence and gain some of my own experience. But if it's higher risk, I'm looking for more stuff. Um, that would be the, the only caveat I would add to that. Sure. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. After going to the gym, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? For me, I'd probably do some more reading or get outside of nature, maybe both. Whether we're talking about training, a dietary change, or just life, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you. Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Of course, therapy isn't a single thing per se, but working with a licensed therapist may be helpful for many folks to learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and overall empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suit you, the individual. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash barbellpod today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash barbellpod for 10% off your first month. All right, next question. Are there quadriceps benefits to squatting at the margin of our comfort zone, even if we don't get the hip joint below the knee joint? So I assume this means if you're squatting above parallel, like do the quadriceps have any benefit? Like if you do squats above parallel, is it worthless? Oh, yeah, absolutely worthless. Internet never <laughs> squat above parallel. Uh, no, yeah, there, there's, there's benefits to all muscles of the lower extremity from doing any type of loaded sort of exercise, uh, in this case squats, to effectively any range of motion. Uh, as far as the magnitude of benefits and the specific type of benefits, that's going to be specific to the uh, way you're testing it, so how you can evaluate that improvement, and also how you're training, right? So there may be some uh, uh, indication to do like quarter squats, half squats, other partial range of motion squats in sprinters, jumpers, uh, or sports with a lot of jumping. Um, that may actually be preferred in some case. Not the only type of squat that they do, but um, certainly maybe some of the exposure. And for individuals who cannot otherwise achieve depth as it's defined by powerlifting federations, the crease of the hip below the top of the knee joint, some squatting, any type of squatting is better than no squatting. The real question then would become, all right, well, is it better to do a leg press with a full range of motion uh, compared to a squat with a less than full range of motion? Like something only due to the unique uh, range of motion of the hip and the knee joint. And to that, I feel less confident. Um, the squat itself, you know, there's some balance component there, um, does uh, have an additional component that you have to deal with your body moving through space with a lot of degrees of freedom compared to the leg press. And so I think, again, it just depends how you're testing the sort of outcome, the benefit. Uh, so yeah, I think there's benefits to training the quadriceps at all different lengths. Uh, for most folks, I would in general recommend training through a rather, a rather large uh, range of motion uh, with a squat if you can go below parallel. That would be my preference. If you can't, I think doing some squatting to as low as you can go is probably beneficial. For very specific athletic populations, I would you know reference your sport and see what are the specific joint angles that are apparent in your sport and train there as well. Uh, I just think like it, it'd be highly unlikely for an exercise that you perform to have no benefits. Um, it may not have the most amount of benefits, but again, that just depends how you're assessing those benefits. So. Yeah, a lot of these types of questions, uh, we tend to mentally divide into performance-related considerations or outcomes, like strength and hypertrophy and things like that, in which case, what exercises you do and how you do them has a lot more importance versus health-related outcomes. 
right? And in general, the general theme is as it relates to performance-related outcomes, these details matter. As it relates to health-related outcomes, well, where the stakes are arguably higher. They are, they are higher, but These details less. matter less. What we mean by that is if we have somebody with diabetes and their hemoglobin A1C is 6.7%, whether they squat a centimeter above parallel or a centimeter below parallel is not going to impact their glycemic control and their A1C and their diabetes outcomes. Irrelevant. It's their blood pressure is 140 over 90 and they squat a centimeter above or a centimeter below, not going to make a difference if they do, uh, you know, a one eighth squat versus a full depth all the way to the bottom squat, then maybe there's, you know, some potential difference, but I still don't know that it's going to be massive, yeah. right? So for health related outcomes, I think that's why I even adjust the way that I coach on the platforms this weekend and in real life, depending on what do I know about this person? Why are they training? What are their goals? What are their preferences? What are their limitations? What are their resources? Those important questions that I hammered on repeatedly, because that's going to inform how much detail does this person need? How, uh, how, how particular do we need to be about minor joint angle adjustments or minor uh, range of motion adjustments, right? A lot of you guys who were on my platforms, you probably uh, can identify yourselves of who was much more interested in very detailed, you know, nitpick coaching on certain minor aspects of the lifts and others who I said, you know, that's perfectly acceptable. Are there things that I could have just hammered on you to make you look like a competitive lifter? Yes. Would you have hated me? Probably. Would I have hated myself? Probably. <laughs> so we didn't, so we didn't do that. So there's, there's differences in considerations uh, based on uh, the, the outcomes that you're looking at and who you're coaching. Yeah. Can you imagine, though, if there was a study that came out, or a number of studies that showed that squatting below parallel definitively... <laughs> Cured high blood pressure. Yeah, lowered resting blood pressure more than squatting above parallel. We would have a whole new line of business. Yes. Like, yeah, hey, look, yeah. we can help we can, you. We can get you there. Yeah, exactly. I think this is our last question. All right, last question. Would you ever... I like talking in absolutes. Would yes. you ever <laughs> modify technique to prevent injury? For example, would you coach a swimmer who's pulling down with a straight arm to modify their technique uh, to pulling back with a bent elbow for the purpose of preventing shoulder injury. This change may be advantageous from an efficiency standpoint, but would you consider it valid to make that adjustment for injury prevention alone? I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with like a basic sort of analysis, and then we can, you can talk about the swimming thing, and then we'll probably come together at the end. Sure. I think this would vary based on uh, the movement and that it would have to have some sort of inherent risk at doing it outside of this realm of acceptable technique, right? And the risk would have to be so high and so sudden that I have to stop the person right now and have them fix it. I cannot think of many movements uh, that fit that criteria, meaning that if you do it this, one, this wrong, wrong way outside of the acceptable realm, uh, acceptable range of, of correct technique would cause an injury right then and there and it would be catastrophic and it would severely set you back can't think of many exercises like that, any, but you know, I haven't thought extensively about this. I'm just thinking about, I've been coaching for 15 years. I've coached thousands of people how to do squats, bench press, deadlifts, power clean, snatches, et cetera. And I'm like, you could do all of those things at the margins of what I would consider somewhat acceptable based on the points of performance that you've determined ahead of time and live a full and complete life and be fine. Again, the human adaptive potential is higher than we've, you know, we don't know where it ends. Um, and so I'm just trying to think about an actual movement that would, again, very suddenly and with very sh like little exposure cause an injury. And I think that's mostly related to the dose of what you're doing um, for most sort of movements. So like, let's say you were doing jumping off a box to the ground, uh, uh, depth jumps, I think. And uh, 
you, you know, the person was landing wrong outside of, again, this range of acceptable technique, it would only be a problem if the box was high. It wouldn't be a problem if they did it off this, this small sort of ledge. And so the, in that case, you're not really talking about technique in isolation. You're talking about technique and dose at that particular point. And so I think it's really difficult to come up with a scenario, this manufactured scenario, where the movement done just incorrectly with no consideration of dose is very, very risky and needs to be corrected automatically. Anything on a, on a dirt bike? <laughs> I mean, I've done everything wrong on a dirt bike, for sure. Hence the numerous fractures and dislocations. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, even then, because, uh, again, the rate of speed and, uh, yeah, that, that's all problematic. Um, y yeah, again, you just slow down and you'll be fine. <laughs> well, so that's the thing, right? The, the, the intensity of the dose is the problem at, yeah. at, at that particular point. Yeah. Um, can you think of a, a movement example that's like... I struggled with this as well. Uh, out, you know, in this in this particular example, the the idea of a swimmer pulling down with a straight arm. Like, if you saw somebody, or even if a seasoned coach saw somebody doing this, they're not going to be like, "Oh my God, that's so bad." For stop, their stop, 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 right, stop, stop. Yeah. Right there. Rather, it's like if this person has never swum before, and they start swimming that way, and they go out and they do ten thousand meters in their first session. Dosage. <laughs> yeah, you're going to feel bad probably no matter how you move your arm through the water in that situation, right? And so, I mean, I remember swimming with a lot of people who had some very interesting, unique swimming technique. Even at the highest level, when I was swimming at the collegiate level, I had a distant swimmer teammate who had a horrifically ugly stroke. He would have one side that looked pretty normal, and this other side had this heaving straight arm stroke that he would smash into the water, and his, it just was the odd one out of the pool compared with everyone else. Everybody's like, what is that that's happening there? But he was fast. Worked well for him. That was, at some point, he acquired that movement strategy when he was younger, and that was the way he moved, and uh, he did quite well with it. And if anything, trying to fix him probably would have slowed him down at that point, right? I talked about this with somebody else here this weekend about, you know, apparently Usain Bolt having like a pretty significant leg length discrepancy, and that has an impact on his stride. Imagine trying to make his stride perfectly symmetrical. He'd get dead last. He wouldn't qualify for finals, yeah. right? Well, he'd probably qualify for finals yeah, still, not. but he wouldn't win <laughs> in that situation. That's how freaky he is. I think this kind of goes um, back to the, to the screening thing, right? So you want to catch something in a period where you can modify it to affect the outcome, uh, right? And then uh, the stakes have to be high enough where it matters and it has to be common enough. Yeah. Uh, and, and I just, you know, th this goes into like screening for exercise, like screening for movement proficiency before someone squats. Oh, you got to make sure they have enough ankle mobility or, you know, knee range of motion or hip range of motion before they actually squat. And it's like, well, that's specific to the squat. So how am I going to find out before they actually squat? And if they happen to squat wrong in a relatively sterile environment like the gym, uh, perhaps an assisted squat or a squat to a box or something like that, I can tell like, oh, could they do this or not? Can I, you know, fix this, make it more efficient or not? But I don't suspect any sort of catastrophic injury that I would uh, likely expose them to without screening them beforehand. Um, and so I, I just think about movement screens in general not being terribly helpful. helpful. And I think, you know, hyper-focusing on technique from an injury risk perspective, independent of load consideration, is, you know, uh, not very useful. Uh, for example, on a soccer field, planting and cutting, right? So you're landing wrong, you know, and cutting and, you know, might twist and rupture your ACL. Okay, that's maybe one example of like a movement that if you could correct it would reduce risk of injury and the stakes are high and it happens in the short term, but I don't know that you can fix that is what I'm getting Something at. Something that happens on the order of milliseconds. Yeah. Retraining that is very difficult. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Retraining that movement pattern, getting people stronger, that's a longer term process. And so what would you do differently in that case? You, you, 
maybe would more maybe emphasize strength training more. Yeah. You know, I mean, even thinking through everybody that I coached on the on the lifting platforms this weekend, all of the corrections that I offered or cues that I offered overwhelmingly when I saw something and I suggested a cue, it was for the purposes of movement efficiency, right? To make this uh, uh, lift more likely to be successful, to allow it to be more efficient such that they could use more load with the same technique and perform better. Um, and most of it was an experiment. I would often have an idea of, yeah, this is probably gonna work better for this person, but I was always eliciting their feedback. I said, let's trial, give this a try, because I see how you're doing it now. You might have a long history doing it like this and be used to this. Let's try this, let's see how it feels and how it looks. I'll observe my objective kind of perspective on it. I'll get their subjective feedback on it. And sometimes they're like, oh yeah, that's so much better. Let's stick with that. Other times they're like, mm, not loving that, not loving that. And I say, why? Tell me more. Tell me what's going and what you're feeling. Yeah. Tell me about it. And sometimes we'll revert back to what I preferred less from a textbook version of the lift because that was more tolerable, more comfortable. Maybe they actually moved more confidently um, or better in some way with the technique but prior to the adjustment. And so this stuff is malleable, but none of these adjustments that I suggested was due to me seeing it and saying, I can't watch another rep of this. This person's gonna die yeah. if they do this again or something I like think, that. I think right? I've come up with an artificial, like a situation that might fit this. I or, gave you enough time to yeah, double yeah. enough. You came up with something. The idea would be that somebody sets up in such a way where an accident is highly probable to occur. So sure. I, I first started at mot in motocross, all right? So at the start of a motocross race, you have up to 40 riders on a gate, backwards falling gate, the, uh, and then somebody in the middle of what's called the doghouse that none of the riders can see will stomp on a pedal and the gate will drop, everybody rockets towards the first turn. Now, the starting technique that everyone uses is you're either in first or second gear and you're way forward on the bike. The idea is that as you release the clutch and give it a lot of gas, you don't want it to wheelie over backwards on you. So if somebody was sitting on the back of the seat, sure. for example, and was like, well, this Just is fine, to, right? Yeah, ready to they're going to flip, excite bike style, right? <laughs> so then I'm like, okay, well, what about swimming, for example? If somebody was just learning how to dive off the blocks and they thought they had to aim as close as possible to the edge of the pool, you would probably modify that straight if, down. If somebody came yeah. out of the squat rack and set up in such a way where they were like teeter tottering about to fall, you're like, okay, let's adjust this immediately. Yep. So you're trying to prevent an accident to the extent that you notice the signs before the accident occurs. It is modifiable. I would do all of those things. So I would modify technique for that. Sure. Um, I'm just it, uh, a suicide grip on a bench press, for example. Some people that means do it when in you're bench pressing and your thumb is not around the bar, but on the other side, so I the bar is prone to roll out of your hand. Would probably for, advocate for the uninitiated. Would probably advocate against that <laughs> yes, as a, as a hence general. The name. Yeah, as a general rule. So there, yeah, I think to to the extent that you can prevent things that are highly probable to cause an accident, that would be my technique modification for reducing the risk of yeah, injury. I like it. But if it's not an accident-inducing sort of technique in and of itself, rather the person can control can do a repetition in a way that's somewhat repeatable uh, and meets the points of performance. I think it is highly probable that they're likely to adapt to that if the dosing is correct. Yeah. Outside of an accident situation, I don't know that I can make an artificial situation that works. Yep. You agree? I agree. Well done. We did it. Thank you guys so much for coming to our seminar. I appreciate it. Mm -hmm.